Hello, and welcome to One Step Ahead. I'm co-host Kim Leary, and sitting across from me is co-host Mike Wheeler, who teaches negotiation virtually everywhere, thanks to his HBS Online Negotiation Mastery course. You've got, what is it now, Mike? Participants from more than 100 countries? Yep, and still growing. And how about you hopping back and forth between Harvard School of Government and its School of Public Health teaching adaptive leadership? Given how bad Boston traffic is nowadays, teaching in the digital world looks better and better. Well, we are in that digital world right now with our One Step Ahead podcast. And I love how it helps us connect with others who see the importance of agility in both negotiation, your domain, Mike, and in mine, leadership. Those listeners can share their insights and experiences with us on our website. It's Negotiation 360. To get there, just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert, N360.expert, and you'll find us. And near the close, we'll tell you a bit more about the resources that are available on our site. But right now, let's settle in and get started on today's episode. Today, we're going to talk to Andy Wassenchuk, former COO of the New England Patriots, now colleague of mine. I'm really intrigued to hear about how, given how famous professional football players are and what kind of... uh, income they get from not only their team, but from endorsements, how you motivate them not only to be good or very good, but to be at their very best. And yeah, I think that's such a critical question these days. We're all working in teams in different organizations, and the real reason we have a team is to make sure that we can get the synergies that a team allows. I think we have a lot to learn from Andy. Well, so let's call him in and see what we can learn from him. Sounds good. Here we are once again on One Step Ahead, a beautiful early fall afternoon, it seems, even though we haven't quite reached the solstice or, what is it, equinox, that's what it is. The kind of morning that gets you thinking about maybe football. It's good to be thinking about football because Andy Wassenschuk is with us. Andy is former... Chief Operating Officer of the New England Patriots. So it's great to have Andy here. He's a wonderful colleague of mine in the NOM unit, N-O-M, Negotiation Organizations and Markets uh, Units. But back in the day, uh, he's been many things, graduate student in electrical engineering, consultant for Bain, MBA student here. But I want to take you back, if, if I may, Andy, to your time with the New England Patriots, where you were chief operating officer. You're talking about employees there, some of whom are truly world famous for their athletic prowess. Obviously, they're driven and motivated to an extent, but do you ever have a problem uh, getting them to give 100% as opposed to maybe 90 or even 80? What, what happens then? Yeah, you know, it's, there, there are you know, so many different kinds of players obviously they're they're elite athletes they've uh they're they've reached the absolute pinnacle of uh you know the the sport to be playing in the nfl 
but many of them have different uh, attitudes about you know what it is that uh, they need to do for preparation they have different uh, habits that, that have been generated so their their own individual thought process for formulas for success may differ and so when you're you know trying to assemble them as a team sometimes the the challenge is you know how do you tap into all those different motivational schemas to uh, to hopefully create policies or create programs that uh, actually resonate with the, the vast majority of folks or certainly a critical mass of them that allows for, uh, again, uh, progress in, in whatever form you're talking about. So, so that sounds, Andy, like exactly the challenge that almost every organization is facing especially those where you've got high performers or high talent, and you have to figure out how to engage their individual needs and talents and move them into something that becomes a team. I think that's what we'd love to hear more about. And also, just uh, was this like a dream job for you? Did you uh, think uh, when you got uh, tapped to, to come into this role, wow, I have arrived? Can you tell us more about that moment? Yeah, I, I think the first phone call that I received from Bob Kraft uh, inviting me to join, we did not have the team yet. It was to join his organization to run the stadium that uh, they were buying. It was with the idea that uh, there'd be a chase after this acquisition of the team. I had never anticipated working in professional sports. You know, I was an engineer by uh, by undergraduate and some graduate work training, and then you know having a Harvard MBA. I thought my dream job might be trying to run a tech company of some sorts. But I always loved as a as a hobby watching and uh, and going to sporting events. So when the opportunity came, it was a bit of a pivot. Uh, you know, it was kind of trying to make some assessments of how does this fit in. And and obviously one of the biggest pluses was as I got to know you know Robert Kraft and Jonathan Kraft and the, their organization. There was a team of people there that I kind of felt both it would be fun to work with, but I could learn a lot from. So that those were key drivers for me. And it, 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 though it didn't match what I might have, uh, you know, stated if at, at eighth grade somebody asked me what's my dream job, I probably would have had a very different uh, version. Sure. Uh, by sure. the time I was into it, it was great. And and Andy, did you play on teams yourself as you were growing up? Uh, yeah, well, college, well, you know, I was a soccer player and I, you know, did track and field, but never a football player. And, you know, I don't think I had the size and uh, that didn't stop me from just being a, a, a huge fan, though, of, of the game, you know, through all those years. So we, we make uh, a lot of uh, assumptions that, that I think are warranted in many ways about leadership and sports and being able to play on a team, to be able to be a fan of a team, to be able to put together a team and and make sure that business is working, they all involve a quality of leadership. Can you say more about what you've learned from being so close to elite athletes about leadership and about what those of us who aren't gonna be on that playing field but will be elsewhere might be able to take from their experience? Well, Kim, I'm going to give you a little story, and and maybe we can extrapolate from that maybe a principle on the leadership side. 
One area that uh, that really intrigued me when we were uh, getting started, when I was getting started with looking at what we were doing with our players and how we were attracting, you know, key free agents to the team and how we were trying to hold on to the really talented players that we had. One of the studies that we had done had to do with player injuries. In the era that we were just starting out in, this was the the whole salary cap structure where teams were limited to how much they could uh, spend on their players. What became clear is that as you pay a lot of money to a handful of your superstars, if by a stroke of bad luck they get injured, you don't have the capacity to actually find another player to take that individual's slot, if you will, the the expectation. There may be backup players on your own roster, but you're not going to be able to go out and pay somebody else you know, three, four million dollars that you need for uh, dealing with a particular hole on your defense or on the offensive side of the ball. The punchline there was that those kinds of injuries, what we learned is that the, the frequency of injuries during a season actually were higher for players that did not participate in off-season workout programs. You can imagine that, you know, these are elite, elite athletes. They run very fast. They're very strong. There's a lot of stresses that their body undergo during the course of the season, which basically from, you know, August to to, December or January is highly intense and they're working out very hard. But the nature of the season, there's a rest period that's involved in the later January through um, uh, early summer uh, period of time. And back then, many players really took that to heart. It was a time to rest. It was a time to do other things. But the problem was that when they came back to the intensity of the game, those injuries would be much more likely. You you could see that the players who were not coming to those, what if you want to call them, those workouts, those trainings, were more prone to have injuries. There must have been some people who were obviously more diligent in that respect, or am I misunderstanding the, how you got your data? Yes, yeah, so indeed, there, there's a program, and it was basically by the rules, by the collective bargaining agreement that existed, a voluntary ah. off-season program. Every team had the ability to run these off-season programs 10, 12 weeks during those off months that would be focused on conditioning and strength training and the like, but the requirement from the league was, and, and this, this agreement was, that you couldn't force people to be a part of it. I see. So th- th- what we saw was that those that participated had a much lower frequency of injury, but you can't force them to do it. So in my typical Harvard MBA fashion, I decided I was going to do a little bit of a twist. I can't tell them they have to do it, but maybe I can create a financial incentive to have them do it. And so we began to negotiate our contracts with players in a way that took some of the money that they would normally have earned in their salary, which would be earned through the course of a season. We were going to give that to them earlier in the off season, not more money, but shifting the money so that they had the incentive to run in the uh, or to participate in these off season uh, programs. The risk to them was that if they did not complete 90% of these programs, they'd forfeit that money. And, you know, this was oftentimes $50,000, $100,000, so it's not inconsequential at all. And 
initially we found that you know some people fought it but others participated what we found after two or three years though is that you know some of our top top players it wasn't worth the hundred thousand dollars to them or they were choosing to still go ahead and, and take their vacations and we were doing a lot of head scratching that we, we really had to figure out what is it that we can do to make sure that not just the, the best players or the worst players are participating in this, but we want everybody to be participating in it. So Andy, that's really interesting because you have these elite players and you found a way to incent them to do the off-season conditioning. But what did you understand about why they were opting out? Because that would be an important part of trying to understand, right, uh, in order to design the right incentive to engage them. They, they just felt that they wanted a little bit of time for themselves or for their family and to, to be away. And so I think at some level, it did not engage them in a way that if it was purely financial, it felt like, okay, this is a, a punitive system. And it ultimately, though, short term seemed to have a positive effect. After you know two or three seasons, we, we found that it just wasn't working. The thing that interests me, Kim, is... It worked for a time, and then it sort of just got stale. It's not as if people were getting more money. They were just getting their money sooner. Right. Uh, And for the people who are getting paid a gazillion dollars, they weren't worried about the float uh, on that. Talk about leadership. If it's the elite players, Andy, who are not doing this, the other players must look at them and say, they haven't told me not to come, but they're demonstrating that I don't need to come. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, that was always the risk that we felt, that you really want your elite players to set the example for everybody else. There would be some players that, you know, obviously you know, might be affected that, well, gee, if that superstar is not here, why should I be here? Many of the players didn't take that attitude. They still felt that, okay, I'm fighting for a job. Let me do everything I can to earn the right to be on the playing field for this team. It's not as if everybody kind of jettisoned. But it, it, we clearly saw that there was an erosion of, of its effectiveness as a program to do what we wanted, which was to, frankly, have 100% of the players participating. And, and as a byproduct of that 100%, would be much less likely to see those season-ending injuries. So you were, con- you were constrained by the collective bargaining agreement that goes with the entire league. You couldn't pay them more money. You could do bonuses. All you could do is accelerate the, the payment. You came up with a different solution. What was it? It was, again, the proverbial, not my own bright idea, but at least as somebody willing to listen, uh, our strength and conditioning coach basically, you know, posed a, a different kind of incentive scheme, shall we say. You know, what he wanted to do was basically run a competition during the course of the off season for players that participated in these different uh, workouts there would be a measurable way from beginning to the end of the program to how much stronger they got, how much faster they got. And so he was going to separate them by position groups because obviously linemen that aren't supposed to run very far or very fast, their job is to make way for the running back or to protect the quarterback. They work out very differently than a speed wide receiver or than a cornerback might. But the punchline was he was going to separate into, you know, different competition groups 
And at the end of the off-season program, what he would do is reward the winners of each of those groups, not with a cash prize, but rather with a sign that would be posted in the player parking lot, the spaces that would be closest to the locker room where they come in every morning would actually be designated for the winners of the off-season program. And now all of these professional athletes, when they would come in in the morning, would have to walk past the car spaces and the cars of the athletes that chose to participate and won their respective positions. I love that. It isn't merely that you give me a thing and I only have to take a few steps to the door to get in, but all the other clowns of the team have to see my name as they enter the place. Do I have that right? That's exactly it. And, and you know, what was the genius of it? It really cost pennies to, to make these signs or to allocate these handful of parking spaces to the program. But it what it engaged the players on, these are guys that have competed their whole life. That's how they defined themselves. They love competition. It was not an uncommon phenomenon to see when practice is over, these guys would be in the locker room or adjoining areas playing ping pong or playing backgammon or doing something. You know, as time went on, video games became popular in the locker room. They love to compete. They define themselves by their competitive nature. And lo and behold, that's the kind of the magic twist that the strength and conditioning coach saw yeah. that, you know, the Harvard MBA didn't see that he saw really what they were wired with. And it was an amazing turnaround in terms of how, how people engaged in the program at that point. You know, Andy, there's a lesson there, I think, for all of us about the importance of really understanding who you're working with and how you're trying to engage them really understanding what's important to people. That comes through pretty loud and clear in that story. Oh, very much so. Very much so, Kim. I'm just wondering, Andy, in other things you've seen, going back to your time when you were a consultant for Bain and so forth, and what you've done also as a trustee of your alma mater, is this a special case, or can you see other instances where incentives just aren't more dollars on the table, but there's something else that really encourages and supports people performing at their very best. Well, Mike, you're, I think, aware that I've been involved with a couple of colleagues, Brian Hall, John Bashirs, with a course that we've had at the, at the business school for a number of years now that does look at this whole schema of motivation and uh, incentive systems. And incentive systems, we don't define them as just compensation. How are people paid? That's an important part, but it's certainly not the only thing. But there's much, much research that has basically reinforced today the other parts of what is it that people find important in their careers you know, whether it's the opportunity to have a, a little bit of autonomy in their ability to kind of make the choices or decisions. And so having that is a huge motivational force. A connection to purpose is obviously something that has oftentimes been cited as critical as a motivating force so that it's not people just going through the motions on tasks, but they see the greater good of what it is that they're, they're, they're being asked to do. So Andy, it, it sounds like work is important to people for so many more reasons than just the paycheck they're taking home. I, I think most people will attest the, you know, the explanations of intrinsic, the things that are felt inside tied to the, the work itself 
versus the extrinsic, which may be a financial reward. It's not as if you can rely on one or the other entirely. There's a complex uh, interweaving of, of both of them. And, you know, one needs to, uh, as a manager or as a leader, understand and, and engage their people. The truth of the matter is that oftentimes people themselves within an organization can have different motivational mainsprings. And you know, the challenge is what, what common threads can you find in terms of putting together the policies and the programs that will at least work well, may not be optimal for each individual, but will work well across the wider uh, birth of the group that you have trying to add value to create value for the organization. Well, this has been great, Andy. I would add a little PS to it. It's not just the idea that was deployed here, but it's the source of it. Here's a trainer who, you know, is not as high in the organization as you were. You're too modest about your own skills and so forth. But the trainer was on the ground with these people, understood their nature, and figured out a uh, an elegant and I think uh, amusing example of how to get people to perform at their best. And I think too, Mike, that it shows the, the value of leadership coming from multiple places within an organization. So thank you very much, Andy. It's been great talking with you. Thank you, guys. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.